I thought today I want to I take off on uh, this theme of caring for the weak and the poor um, and the theme of humility. Uh, Augustine, his dates are about 300 A.D., He says, if you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, third, humility. That's amazing. That's pretty pretty powerful. Augustine says, what's important? One, two, here here are the first three. Humility. You got those? Okay, now we go to four. First three things. First, second, and third. That's especially interesting in that in the early centuries in the Greek world, humility was not a virtue so much as power and pride and strength and logic and you know the humble were often looked upon humble in the culture was identified with weakness and poverty and poor in fact even in the Greek or in the Hebrew Bible the ani are the poor of the land ani the anav are humble and it's kind of rooted in the same thing so to be humble and broken is to be crushed, broken down, in poverty, weak. But that experience of being crushed, of being weak, sometimes leads us to that heart of brokenness and humility. Because in all honesty, in our sin, we hide from God, like in the garden. They hid from God. And, and then we glory in our sin, We don't want to admit that we're sinful. And, you know, these girls that have become pregnant or couples that are going through, they just want to cover it up. Let's just kill this baby. Same thing in the Greek world. Let's just, you know, kill the baby. And early, Justin Martyr in his apology wrote, we're we're not like the pagan. We don't expose our children. We share everything with one another, not our beds. We are kind and loving. We are counted as the scum of the earth. We suffer, yet in those first centuries, Christians developed a tradition of of caring for the poor, caring for the weak, picking up the abandoned babies. That identified Christianity so that by the time of Augustine, he could say, first, second, third, it's humility. Well, what's the background of this? How many of you read, you don't have to raise your hand, Habakkuk? Everybody know a lot about Habakkuk? If you're, if you're challenged by the Old Testament, sometimes it's fun to read the little books. You know, you think of these big, long books in the Old Testament. Just like in the New Testament, there are big books in the front. You know, Matthew and Luke and Acts and Romans, long books. But there are a bunch of little epistles at the end. And if you're just kind of new as a Christian and wanting to work through things, start with some of the little books. Same thing in the prophets. If you're challenged by the Old Testament, read the little books. This is only three or four chapters. It's a great little book. It's a prophet called Habakkuk. He's known as the philosopher prophet. And he begins with this huge philosophical problem. It's the problem of suffering, and not just suffering in general, but suffering at the hands of wicked people, righteous people even suffering. He says, how long, O Lord? That's kind of a typical Jewish thing. How long, O Lord? They're always suffering as Jews. How long will I cry for help and you don't hear? I cry out violence and you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. One version says paralyzed. The law is paralyzed. And justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. And justice comes out perverted. 
Wow, you could identify with that at times. You know, even in our culture, the wicked surround the righteous, justice comes out all twisted around. So it's okay to kill babies or to kill the weak or whatever. And you think, that's a law? Well, yeah, but it's a perverted law, isn't it? Well, in Habakkuk, he's looking at the injustice in the society. There are problems in the Jewish culture. But an even greater problem is that the Babylonians are coming to stomp them. And they're a little country. And they're about to get stomped by this massive power. And he says, now I know we have injustice. But I look around and I see the wicked more, more uh, they're crush, crushing those who are more righteous than they are. We're not maybe good, but we're better than they are. And here they come stomping us all. How can that be right? And so God, he, he stops and he says, well, and, uh, you know, as Jews, we, we often struggle with what, what happens in the world and we challenge God. And he says, I'll stand on the hill and wait until I'm rebuked and he'll answer me. Because <laughs> he knows God's going to rebuke him. You know, in the, in the uh, concentration camps, the Jews, there's a story of the Jews putting God on trial and they had a little trial to see if God was righteous and putting him in the concentration camp. And uh, they concluded that it wasn't right at all and they finished Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, and went on. The guard stopped and said, what, what are you doing? They said, we've debated this, and we've decided this is wrong. God did the wrong thing here. But we praise him because he's God. We know he does the right thing. So we figure our justice system must have been flawed because we know he's right. But we tried, <laughs> and so we, we argue with God, but we still trust him. And that's what the end of Habakkuk is all about. In 4, he says, behold, as for the proud, here's your answer, Habakkuk. These wicked people, they're coming their soul is not right within them, the proud in general, but the righteous will live by faith. I want you to just press on. I want you to just trust me. In the end, I'll redeem Israel. In the end, righteousness will triumph. Now, it's interesting in this text, which is quoted three times in the New Testament, it's interesting the contrast. You've got the proud, his soul is not right, and he's contrasted with the righteous who live by faith. So it looks like this pride is a matter of unbelief, too. They don't believe in the living God. Pride is often, is always associated with unbelief. So if you're proud, you don't need to trust God. On the other hand, the righteous are characterized by faith. They will live by faith. They will get righteousness by faith. And they are the humble, as contrasted with the proud. It doesn't say that in this verse. It says the proud contrasts them with the righteous, which obviously is the humble. We're going to see that throughout the text. Luther said, humility is aptness for grace, the essence of faith. Did you ever think about that? Why humility is so important? Because it's that state of humility when you begin to realize you are a sinner and you need to confess it before God, not cover it up and not ignore it, but acknowledge it before God. Say, I'm a sinner and I'm weak and I am poor. And I need you. Humility is aptness for grace. Micah, what are the requirements in life? He's told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. That's all God requires. Well, what does that humble walk amount to? To do justice, to love kindness? You walk humbly with God, you're going to see that that results in faith. That re- that's a brokenness. That's a turning from sin. Humility for us involves repentance. We'll see that. For my hands, this is the end of Isaiah, another great prophet. And at the end, he's saying, what can I give to God? He says, 
God answers, my hand made everything. Thus everything came into being, declares the Lord. So what are you going to offer me? I did all this. But to this one will I look, to the one who's humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Interesting definition of humility here. He's humble and contrite, repentant, contrition of heart. And he trembles at my word. He listens. I speak. He listens. The proud hears God's word and says, forget that. Don't want anything to do with that. The humble hears God's word and he listens. What does it mean to know Jesus? When you think about knowing Christ, knowing him intimately, walking with him. He said, come to me. And you know this verse. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble, and you'll find rest for your soul. So what he's saying is, when you learn from Jesus, when you come to him just empty-handed, he gives you rest. But when you take his yoke and you begin walking with him and learning what, is, what he's like, you learn gentleness and humility, and you find rest, rest from that competition, rest from sin, Rest from resisting God. Rest, peace, righteousness, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Come to me. That's what it means to know Christ. And that's why uh, Augustine could say, this is it. What, is it. what are the precepts of the Christian religion? First, second, third, humility. We don't talk about that sometimes, but it's throughout the scripture. It's, it's just foundational. The next text. Psalm 25. He leads, this is a wonderful series of texts. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. There used to be a, a song, he, the meek will he guide in judgment or justice, the meek will he teach his way, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth for those that uh, keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalm 103, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Did you ever notice in the scripture how the children of Israel are learning the things that God does? And you can study, you see some people that know and see what God does, but others know his ways, his, how he acts. Do you feel sometimes like you know what he's done? You read about it, but I wish I understood his ways. He leads the humble in justice, in knowing what's right, what to do. Do you struggle with what's, what's the right thing? Justice, truth. He teaches the humble his way. He made known his ways to Moses. And what is it about Moses that we remember? Now, the man Moses was very humble, meek. More than any man, he was the meekest man in all the earth. You know, sometimes we remember the Hollywood portrayals of, of Moses. He's always a big beard, big staff, and yelling and hollering. And he goes and he fights with Pharaoh, and he hits the sea, and he yells at the people, and he breaks the commandments. And, you know, that's your image. But the Bible says Moses, and what did Moses do? He gave us the Torah, the law. He taught justice. The meek will he guide in justice. Moses was submitted to God. He was broken and humble before God. And God taught him his ways, not just his acts. Moses spoke face to face with God, it says. He, he knew God. He taught them the law of God, real justice. He was the meekest man in all the earth, 
and he knew God's ways. Doesn't mean he was weak at all, but he was broken and contrite of heart. Who's the greatest? Remember, I didn't give you the context of this, but the disciples are walking along. This is the context if you read the other Gospels. They're walking along and they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. When Jesus comes to his kingdom, who's going to be the best? I'm going to be, no, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to be great. Now, these guys are following him, he's training him, he's teaching him, and they're walking along the way arguing about who's going to be great. And he says, so what were you guys talking about along the way? I don't know. He's talking about something. I don't know. what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> I know what you were talking about. Talking about who's going to be greatest. So the disciples came to Jesus and they said, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? And he called a little child and he set him before them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and you become like little children, that conversion, again, is that's a repentance. There's a turning from the way you are and you be like little children, you won't even enter the kingdom. And whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom. A year or so ago, I shared with you, and we talked about the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart. But here it says, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who's humble. And I think those two are inextricably bound, just like faith with this too. It's when you humble yourself that you can begin to love others. If you're in love with yourself, it's going to be very difficult for you to be laying down your life for others or <laughs> loving anybody because the proud man loves himself, right? And he doesn't need God's word. He resists God. But the humble, the broken, the contrite can love because he's been loved and he's getting Christ's input. All the kings of the earth. You ever got, I asked this question. Does God ever seem far away? Do you ever have times when God seems... You're just kind of going through life and God seems far away. We all have times like that. Well, here's a question you should ask yourself. When God's feeling far away, all the kings of the earth will give thanks to the Lord when they've heard the words of his mouth and they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. How is God's glory great? Though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly. What a fascinating greatness. But the haughty he knows from afar. The proud he resists. The proud he kind of withdraws. Everybody will praise him when they know him. And this is his glory. His glory is great in that though he's exalted, yet he regards the lowly. His glory is not so great that he can't look at the lowly. His glory is great in that he looks at the humble. He has a knowledge of... He regards the lowly, the poor, the weak, which you should do if you follow him. And so it says in Philippians, what is, if we were to think like Christ thinks, if we were to learn what he learns, take my yoke and learn of me, I am gentle and humble. You see the same thing throughout the epistles in Philippians. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and held onto, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did Jesus humble himself? Well, he emptied himself first, and then he humbled himself and he served people, and he became obedient even to the point of death. And that's, that's an essence, that's the essence of humility. It's an obedience to God. He trembles at the word of God. He, the proud doesn't look, but the right, the humble, he trembles at the word of God.
Thus says the high and exalted one who lives on high, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. See the emphasis on contrition, on repentance. God lives in a high holy place and so he's separated from sin. But he also lives in the heart of the humble which is a heart of contrition, brokenness, humility. God lives there. The proud, oh, he knows him from afar. But he teaches the humble his ways, the poor, the broken. Proverbs, though he scoffs at scoffers, he gives grace to the afflicted. Now here it's translated afflicted. Same word, it's, it's, it means this word in Hebrew, afflicted, humble, poor, lowly. The ani are the poor of the land. They're weak and poor. It doesn't mean they're definitely humble. They're the ani. The anav, almost the same word, are the humble. And the emphasis in the Hebrew culture is that as you go through these struggles and trials and you're broken and you're humbled, you're beaten down and poor, you come to have this quality of humility. Not always. Some poor people are still proud. And some, pro- some rich people can be humbled. And that's one of the struggles we have in America you know, we've come to Christ and we're fairly wealthy. How do we live in humility? How do we live in poverty? The meek will inherit the earth. Blessed are you who are poor or poor in spirit. Which way should we translate that? Poor or poor in spirit? It's, it's, there's a blessing to be poor, Jesus says, the ani, because he says the poor, the meek will inherit the earth. But it's, it's this play on this ani, anav, that you've got their poor and humble and afflicted and Jesus says I love you don't worry about your condition you worry about the condition of your heart and if your heart is broken and you're weak and you're outcast your parents have thrown you out whatever if you're broken in your heart and you come to Christ God sees that as a high and holy place God dwells with you but he resists the proud so he says he get he scoffs God laughs he scoffs at scoffers He resists the proud, it says, but he gives grace to the afflicted. It's quoted twice in the New Testament, in Peter and in James. In the Peter context, it's in the context of teaching leadership. You young men, be subject to your elders. And all of you, that is you elders to one another, and everybody in the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God, he quotes the proverb passage, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. That is, this giving grace results in your being exalted. You're saved from sin. You're exalted. He puts you in a, in a place of honor and, and, and blessing because you humble yourself before God. But he says, all of you, this is going to be like clothing. How many of you got up this morning, bounced out of bed, jumped in the car, and came here? Most of you paused along the way, washed your face, maybe took a shower, put some clothes on. Thank you for putting your clothes on. You know, I I didn't notice too many ornate clothes or anything this morning. I saw smiling faces. But had you come without your clothes, guaranteed everybody would have noticed. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, he has no clothes on. (laughs) What's he doing here? You know, you put your clothes on, right? Well, Paul says here, humility is like clothing. That ought to be a no-brainer to you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Submit to one another. That's what it's like. And if you don't have your humility on, you're like an unclothed Christian or an unclothed person. Okay? That's how we should think about it. 
first, second, third. This is it's this quality of, it's a deep repentance for sin. It's contrition. It's turning from sin and saying, I realize the consequences. Now, Jesus didn't have to repent from sin. He was humble. But Jesus understands the consequences of sin. He understands he hates sin. And to have that same heart, of not just, I don't want to do it because it's going to hurt me. I don't want to do it because it's offensive. It's, I want to turn. I want to examine my heart and turn from sin. So repentance leads to this heart of humility. When you don't repent, you allow the sin in your life and you ignore it and you get proud. And you're covering it up. It's just the opposite of the one who believes God, who trembles at his word, who submits to him. And so you see the same thing in James. And he actually gives you a process in James. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the text in Proverbs. He says, and then he ends with humble. So he sandwiches it and he gives you a process. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Stop sinning, you sinners. And purify your hearts. Look into your heart, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. There needs to be some time of real repentance. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. See how that he starts, humble yourselves, and then he outlines it. And you could go through here and just list those things and kind of work through a process. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Is there sin in your life? Draw near to God. He'll draw near. Cleanse your hands. But then mourn, repent of sin. That's the process of this true humility. And it's something that we go through all the time. It's a process. For James, you don't just arrive, boom, here's the humble guy. No, it's a process. As for the proud, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. This is the watchword of the Reformation. The just will live by his faith. In, in one text, it's quoted in Romans and Galatians and in Hebrews as well. In one text, it focuses on how by faith you become righteous. And another text, how it's by faith and not by works that you're righteous. And then the other text, it's how you live continuously. The righteous or the one who is just continues in faith. He's always walking that way. It's not just a one-time thing. He lives by his faith. Proud, not right. Unbelieving, God's far from him. The righteous, he's believing God. He's humble. Humility is aptness for grace, the essence of faith. The other text I didn't put in here, in Romans 12, you, you know, um, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, with your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's the next verse? For I say to every man among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, humbly, as God has given to each a measure of faith. It's interesting when you walk worthy and you give your life a sacrifice and you discover the will of God. For I say to each among you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Think humbly, as God has given to each of you a measure of faith. Did you ever know somebody who had fantastic faith, great faith, and just believe, believe, all the time believing? You say to them, Man, you have great faith. And they say, yeah, I know. It's great faith. 
No, they usually, they usually say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I try to believe God. I don't think like I have faith at all. And he says in this text, if you're ever feeling a little proud, ask yourself, how much are you believing? How much faith did God actually give you? God gave to each a measure of faith. Anybody here feel like, man, I have so much more faith than all the rest of these people? Most of us, if you do have faith, you think, I wish I had more faith. Lord, help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. It's a humbling experience to really look in your heart and say, could you really believe God more? Yeah. Are you believing God for more? No, I need to believe more. You look at those qualities and you look at, at your life and you say, Lord, I need faith. I need to be clothed with humility. I just cast myself on you. I trust you. I believe you. And God works that into your life. That's a basic part of growing up as a Christian, of, of starting and continuing and progressing as a Christian. I just wanted to close with a uh, mention. Uh, that is the last slide I have, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, yesterday was the funeral for Antonin Scalia, our uh, Supreme Court Justice, and I was talking to the fellows that work with the, um, the imaging out here. And I don't know how many of you happened to see it. The Fox News actually televised the entire funeral. Put up, and it was just silent, just the funeral, the procession. It was beautiful. Antonin Scalia was a godly, godly man, a wonderful influence on our nation. I read a number of his opinions. He, he stood as a a minority often standing for righteousness and writing some powerful opinions about right to uh, life and about, about protecting our rights and people. And yet he was a humble, loving guy. Had nine kids and something like 30 grandkids or something. One of his children was a priest. And he did the service yesterday, like three or 4,000 people at the cathedral. I don't usually watch TV on Saturday mornings, but I walked by. The TV was on Fox, and it just went blank, quiet, and they were just walking. They brought everything in, and I thought, I've got to listen to this guy. And he started out his homily. He said, you know, some people, we're here to honor a great man. Some people knew him intimately and personally as a father. Some of you hardly knew him or knew him from a distance. Some knew him as brilliant, some as adversarial. Some knew him as a great thinker, others as a fool. Some mocked him, some opposed him. But he said, I'm speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. I'm <laughs> thinking he's talking about his dad. He said, I'm speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. And my father wrote a letter once to a pastor who'd preached a funeral. And he thanked him that the focus of the funeral was not the accolades of the person they were burying who was dead, but the Savior who saved the man. And he said, that's as it should be. And, I sa and he said, he would want us to remember we're not here to remember a man who is a sinner who's buried, but the man who saved the sinner. 
And he said, we will have a remembrance, a memorial service. <laughs> in, in a few uh, days, there will be a memorial. But he went on and he just preached about, you know, what God does for us in saving us and how humble this man had been to trust Christ. And I thought, that's, that's where life is, that's what life is about. Even if we do great things, it will be because we've known the Savior and because he has made a, an impact on our lives. We humble ourselves, and people knew him as a great friend, as a great father, and it's a great loss for our nation, but a great model to all of us that we walk worthy, that we put on our clothes, walk worthy of Christ with all humility. So may God bless that to you. May you study these texts and let, let the word of God sink deeply in your heart. Let's pray.